Welcome to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancers Mentors podcast. I'm Anna Collins from Leicester in the UK. With me, I have Nico from Rome, Irina from Innsbruck, Kike from Navarra, Arthur from Taiwan, and Alex from Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Today, we're honored to speak to Professor Christina Fotopoulou. Professor Fotopoulou is a world-renowned gynecological cancer surgeon and international expert in advanced cytoreductive surgery who is currently based at Queen Charlotte's and Chelsea Hospital in London. Professor Fotopoulou has conducted many international clinical trials, has led the development of numerous international guidelines and has investigated the implementation of targeted therapies in advanced gynecological cancer and their implications on surgical practice. She is one of the giants of our time. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's amazing to see you all. I am deeply, deeply honoured, not just by your kind words and also by your invitation, but that I am in the same group like you, who are the young generation. You're the future of Ghanaian oncology, not me anymore. You are the amazing ones. So it's a great pleasure and honor to be with you. Fantastic. So, so Nika has the first question. Thank you very much, Christina. It's uh, such an honor to have the opportunity to have this interview with you. And uh, I would like to start with one question, which is what led you to gynecologic oncology? And can you share some of the most exciting moments of your career with us? Thank you very much. Yeah, so that is a very interesting question. And that is a question that I myself have thought many times. So my father is a general surgeon. He's a, he belongs to the, you know, he was an old generation surgeon who used to operate everything from heart till bowel. Uh, so at the end, he sticked with the uh, hepatobiliary and then colorectal. So he was a great surgeon and everybody asked his opinion and I had a high respect of him. So I wanted to become like him. And um, I wanted initially to do general surgery, but then while we were still, because I studied in Berlin in the Charité, so in our vacation time, we were obliged to do some electives um, like student electives, like nursing, to learn how to do the nursing part of medicine, etc., in various hospitals in the world. So I went to the university hospital in Alexandra, in Athens, where I come from, and I was assigned to the Ganyong ward, and that was 20 years ago. And of course, 20 years ago, the treatment of ovarian cancer wasn't as advanced as it is now. No, it wasn't 20, it was 25 years ago. So I was there, and I still remember, and I will never forget it, how these women with a big tummies, you know, the big abdomens full of ascites that were lying one next to each other on the ward. And then would go and do the ward round. I would go as a small student and just take blood of them and they would be tired and they would be in pain and then they would wait for surgery. And, you know, 25 years ago, the treatment wasn't as it is now. So I said, God, I want to treat this woman. And this is how it started. <laughs> very nice, very nice. It's great to hear the story actually 20 years we cannot believe you so you started from five five years yes, old five, no. <laughs> <laughs> i mean alexandra hospital is now in a center of excellence for wine cancer so they they are amazing and they're doing great job and they are the ones who inspired me to do that thank you for for your answer uh, i would like also to ask you what values uh, got you uh, where you are today so there is actually one value and the, this one value is, is the love for my patients and that I do the best for them. I just wanted always to do what is the best for them. Um, 
not just as an individual patient, but as a collective of, of patients. That's why I try to do guidelines, clinical trials, so that I don't just help the one woman that I will, will operate on the day, but that I try to improve the standards of, of treatment for these women across, um, yeah, across, across all the countries. This is what always drove me. This is what gave me meaning in life till I got my children, who gave me then an additional meaning. Um, and I think all of us, if we really follow our beliefs and follow the love to what we do and, and the care for our patients, this is what brings us further. And this is what makes us, gives us the motivation to go beyond the limits. Yeah, and try to, to reach the maximum for them. Thank you, really. I think we will make treasure of these words and, and this is what also guides us from our young generations to to see the the future of gynecology thank you very much and this is this is what you know even though i mean i have reached at the end many things also for myself i never intended that i think everything comes on its own if you really just go and try to do the best for your patients the rest will come so it shouldn't be the other way around to try to do the best for you and then for the patients, should be the other way around. And then the rest just comes. Yes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think this is such an important lesson that we need to, to keep in our minds every day and on our daily basis. Thank totally. you. Also, I would also like to ask, what is an important leadership lesson that you have learned and how has it proven invaluable? We know that you are you are a leader not only in your hospital but around uh, yeah. across international uh, scenarios. So I, I was wondering how, what is the lesson that you can tell us? The lesson. So uh, it is yeah. So I was I started studying very very early. So I started studying medicine when I was seventeen, just because um, it happened like that, and I just got a position early in, in, in Berlin in the charity because I had good marks. So when I started when I started working, I was 23. So I was the youngest. And I remember I was actually 23 in labor world with the midwives. And the midwives, I was younger than the, the trainee midwives, yeah. And <laughs> and they were looking at me and they were saying, gosh, you're the doctor who, who is going to tell us what to do. And I said, oh God, I'm not going to survive this. So I had to somehow <laughs> develop techniques so that even though I was so young and, uh, you know, inexperienced, I tried to work very hard and to show in a nice way what I could do and also to try to, to lead the team because otherwise I wouldn't be able to survive with the German midwives. <laughs> this is how I started. And then, and then um, I remember I had a, I had a consultant, Obats we called them, who was... He was he was very nice. He was very very capable, um, and who thought I was too young to do anything. So he would never assist me anything, not even a laparoscopic cystectomy. So I had to try to show that I'm capable of doing it. I'm try. I had to try to show that I am. I am. Um, you know, not in an egoistic way, in a humble way. That you know, I have the capacity to do it. Uh, so that is how I tried to develop all this. Uh, this this leadership properties to be able to survive in the beginning okay and then of course the more i progressed the more i learned the more i was taught the more i could do the more i could have people around me 
um, I started having uh, medical students that I could teach. I started having um, people that uh, were they would do the MD, PhD with them. So it all started gradually going up and up. And uh, yeah, I, I, I also had a great leader. I remember Professor Zekuli and Professor Lichtenegger who showed me, so they were very good role models for me. So I was taught by the best. <laughs> and that's how it all evolved. Thank you, thank you. Really, it's so impressive to hear these words, and I'm, I'm, they, I think they are important for our generations to to grow and and to be uh, one day like you. Exactly. I'm giving you the honest answers how everything started. <laughs> so it's yeah. We can feel it. Thank you. So I will uh, leave the word back to Anna for the uh, other questions. Thank you, Anna. Thank you very much, Christina. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, so my first question is, um, you've led the development of many of our national, but also international guidelines um, for the management of gynecological cancers. Um, what have you learned from this process that you could share with us? Yeah. So um, first of all, the most important thing that I have learned, I knew it, but when you do this guideline process, you learn it even more, is the vast disparity. You want to close? So it was the vast disparity of practice, of knowledge, of infrastructure across um, the world, across the world, across Europe. So we sit together, 10 people like on a table, yeah, or now in front of a screen in the COVID time, and we try to discuss one topic, yeah, and there are so many opinions about this. There are so many ways to interpret the same evidence. There are so many views and all views are correct and all views are wrong. You know, everything is, nothing is black and white. So it was very interesting for me to learn how you can always learn from somebody else. You can always see the same coin from a different perspective and then see it in a completely different way and implement in a completely different way. That guidelines are just to guide and not really tell you what to do because the way that I work and operate in the UK is different than how I worked and operated in Germany it would be different than how we do it in Greece. It's impossible to have one rule for all countries, all centers in the entire, in the entire world. And this is what um, really was the most important lesson from this, from this guideline committees. That is why if you read all the guidelines that we're now treating, uh, um, developing in ESCO, we very much emphasize the importance of geographical um, differences of, of different healthcare systems and how they uh, have a huge impact on the actual treatment and management of the disease, um, the access to care, access to different resources. It's massive. Yeah. And this is something that we, I don't think it will, I, I will leave it to see it changing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, definitely for us, I think learning to stay curious and to be humble is really good as a trainee as well to, so that you learn the most from, from what you can. Um, my next question is, uh, with the evidence increasingly supporting complete site reduction as one of the most important factors for survival outcomes in women with ovarian cancer, both in the primary and relapse setting, how do you see the surgical management of ovarian cancer in the future? Should this be achieved through regional or accredited centres or surgeons? Yeah, this is a discussion. Uh, this is a question where I have a very passionate answer, which is just yes. Uh, I think it actually should not be allowed that somebody who is not a specialist, trained, dedicated ovarian cancer surgeon operates ovarian cancer. This is a disease where we, as surgeons and gynecologists, can change the survival and the and the future and the journey of those patients. 
And the other way around by not being capable enough or dedicated enough or trained enough, we can bring it into the completely wrong direction. So um, I think there is enough evidence now. This is something that we have within the ESCO guidelines emphasized more and more is that you need to have accredited specialist centers that will treat this disease. UK, as you very well know, was one of the first countries in the world to implement the centralized care. That's how we call it, centralized care. Um, and this is something that uh, in the future will have to become a rule for more and more. And the patients will need to know, the patients should themselves go only to accredited centers. I fully appreciate that there are many political financial games in every country that will um, make it very difficult to fully implement that, fully appreciate that. Uh, but at the end, I think it will be the power of the patients and the voice of the patients who now read. They don't just blindly come to you. They come to you and they have read so much that you, you know, they almost know more than you. They know who you are. They know what you have done, your interviews. They know the data. So the people know, people read. And I don't think anybody who is doing at the same time obstetrics, urogyne will do the ovarian cancer surgery. This should not, this should not happen. Absolutely. Um, and just a follow-up question. So what do you think the management of ovarian cancer will look like 10 years from today? Yeah, that's a very, that's a very interesting question. Where, where first, yeah. So um, we see in, 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 in the entire oncology and oncological surgery, but also in, in gynae oncology, that there is a trend towards reduced radicality. We stop doing lymphadenectomies, we do sentinels. We stop doing big open procedures, we try to do the minimally invasive. We stop doing large vulvectomies, we do wide local excisions. I think we will stop doing radical hysterectomies, but anyway, we will just do simple hysterectomies. So I believe in ovarian cancer, this will not happen in the next 10 years. I think that increased radicality that has been shown to be associated with higher clearance rate that in turn has been shown to be associated with better survival. Um, we as Kanye Oncology community are pushing the limits more and more in a safe way. So through our training and through adequate infrastructure, we have achieved to increase radicality without Ex extraordinary increase of, of morbidity and mortality. Yeah, I mean, um, there were trials of the past that were showing 6% mortality of those surgeries, and now it's, it's less than 1%. So there is a huge, huge difference. Um, and I think that in, in 10 years, the ovarian cancer surgery will be done only in large specialized centers with high exposure to these uh, procedures with access to intensive care, blood, uh, you know, all the resources that are needed um, so that we together with the massive advances of systemic treatment, yeah, with all these PARP inhibitors, um, targeted agents, there will be a package of care that will increase not just the survival of those patients, but also the cure rates. As you all know, we have managed in the last years and the last decades to increase the survival rates, but we have failed to increase the cure rates. The cure rates remain less than 20%. So I think and hope that with a combination of maximal effort surgery paired with, with these advances in systemic, in systemic treatment, we will even uh, manage to increase cure rates. That is my hope and my dream. And let's see. Absolutely. And it, it'd be incredible to start seeing those results improving. Um, I'll hand over to Arthur with some more questions around ovarian cancer. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Professor Fatopo. 
And um, so since there are so many um, numerous uh, algorithms for deciding which patients to have uh, primary debulking surgery and which patients to have a new adjuvant chemotherapy. And since uh, you're such an expert in this field, we'd like to ask that, uh, what is your personal criteria to decide what patients to have primary debulking surgery and what patients to receive new adjuvant chemotherapy? Mm. So that's a very important, uh, very important question. So we leave out the patients with diffuse liver, metal meds, mediastinal lymph nodes. We leave them out. This will all get chemo um, initially. So the question is, the patient with ascites and extensive peritoneal disease, what do we do with them? So what I think is important is to put in an, in an algorithm, to put in a, in a, like a signature, yeah, in an algorithm, the, what extent, what procedures you think you need to do in order to clear this patient and to combine it with the performance status of the patient, the wishes of the patient, the age of the patient, not the chronolog chronological age necessarily, but more the biological age, the renal liver function, um, and see whether this radicality that you need to apply for this case pairs and is compatible with the clinical picture of the patient and also her wishes. Yeah. So, um, we have seen that uh, in the trust trial, there was not cut off. So for example, in the lion trial, there was 75 was the highest uh, age that you were able to recruit. In the trust trial, we extra did not do it as a highest. We just allowed all patients to go in. Um, I mean, I from Imperial, I think the oldest patient I put in was 80, 82. So it's, it's not just the age, it's the whole performance status, the fragility, the frailty scores, yeah but also the wish of the patient. The patient needs to back you up. When the patient is on the ward for a week with drains, with pleurofusions, with vomiting, with an NG tube perhaps, she needs to back you up. She needs to be behind you and you need to preoperatively assess her as well as possible whether she will be, she will be at your side. This is one of the most important factors for me. That is why during the pandemic, where we hardly saw the patients before we operated on them, we had to phone them only. I tried to somehow do a FaceTime or just see them, because just by looking to the eyes, sometimes you understand whether they will have the the, the power to the power to fight. Yeah. Um, the second very important thing is to be honest with the patients and to explain to them that there are two options. So we have learned, I mean, I was trained to just do primary debulking. Yeah, I was never trained to also offer neoadjuvant chemotherapy. After the trust trial, I mean, for the duration of the trust trial, we then started offering both options to the patients. And then those patients who did not want to go into the study, they wanted to choose one or the other. Yeah, so I never stopped discussing both options with the patient. So you need to be open, transparent with them, tell them the pros and cons of both approaches. Yeah, uh, and say, listen, I'm happy to operate you up front. These are the statistics, these are the risks, these are the data. Um, be honest with them. Say, I always say to them, this is my personal belief, but the data, we just don't have them in a maximal effort setting yet. We need to wait for the trust study. So just be open with them. Um, thank you so much for your extensive uh, explanation and thorough explanation. I'll keep, I think we'll all keep in mind how to decide uh, what to do and how to explain it. And my uh, further uh, question is that I read from your article, it's that uh, from the UK National Cancer Data Repository reports, 
it is said that around 40% of patients with newly diagnosed uh, advanced ovarian cancer never have the bulking at any timing. So uh, I'd like to ask um, what's your perspective on this and do you have any uh, uh, suggestions on this? Yeah. Thank you. So the good or bad thing, the actually good thing about the UK is that because it's such a centralized care, every patient is captured. Even the 90-year-old woman with pleural effusion and ascites and some malignant cells in, of ovarian cancer and the ascites will, be, who will never get treatment, will be captured in databases and will go into the statistics which is not the case in many countries. Yeah, so in, in many countries, for example, like Germany, where there is no specialized care, yes, we count the patients that are treated in cancer centers, but all the patients who just die in a small hospital that has no database, yeah, and they just die untreated somewhere, they do not go into the statistics. That is why this 44% is a true number, which I do not think is different in any other country, to be honest, yeah or largely different, yeah? Because it's just that the UK, through the very, very um, organization of care and centralization of care, every patient gets counted, goes into the books and, and goes into the final statistics. So um, even if you see some SEER database uh, data from, uh, from the US, it's also around 40%, 35-40%. So I think these are the numbers. I truly believe that Yes, not all patients with ovarian cancer can be operated. Yeah, there will be patients who will be very frail, very old, with extensive disease, where we just cannot operate on them. However, this proportion is definitely not 55%. Yeah, um, we need to increase that. We have the stakeholders and the key opinion leaders within the UK under the guide, the, the leadership of Suda Sunda, who is our BGCS president, the British Cancer Cancer Society uh, president. She, we now have developed a, a plan of how to increase the rates of patients who get surgery or who get offered surgery for ovarian cancer. Um, because it's, it's also a matter of, of access to care, infrastructure, money. Yeah? So we need, we need to increase that. It's, it's a very, very, no, increase the patients who are operated, not who are not operated. So decrease the numbers of those who are not operated. It won't be easy and it won't be something that can be done overnight. Um, because of course, these patients who are not operated are those with more extensive disease, high tumor volume, higher frailty scores. So you need, of course, more, it's more challenging to treat those patients. So it will be an effort, but it definitely needs to get increased. And this is not a problem that is only for the UK. Thank you so much, Professor. And uh, I think this is all uh, what we have to work around the world. And now I will hand my questions to uh, Kike. Okay, thank you, Arthur. First of all, I would like to thank you for being here today with us. We are very lucky to be able to discuss about Tiny Onco with one of the giants. In this context, we have been talking about trust trial. I was wondering if you could give us a prediction on what the outcome of the trust trial will be. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, something that <laughs> I have asked myself very often. So the problem with it, problem. The issue with the trust trial is that these patients were, had maximal grade surgery in both arms. Yeah. So the first thing that I will say is that both arms will have excellent survival. Yeah. Um, and this is why we will need, this is why we won't do any preliminary analysis in between. We will just wait till the end of the follow-up before we make any, 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 any final analysis. 
So um, I think that the short-term outcome, the short-term, so if you say the two-year survival rate, I think it will be the same between arms. Yeah, I, I'm almost certain about that. I think it's the longer-term outcome, the longer-term survival that will be different. And I think it will be higher. I don't know if it will be significant, but I think it will be higher in the primary arm. Also, what I think will be different um, or better in the primary arm will be the, the PFS, the PFS, at least the PFS2. I'm not sure about the PFS1, to be honest, just because they both arms had very, very good surgery. So in, in summary, I think that there will be an effect of the primary debulking, yes. How significant it will be, I can't predict. But I think that any difference will be on the longer term, not on the short term just because all patients had maximal effort treatment um, across all levels. Okay, thank you very much for your interesting answer. Um, uh, talking about the bulking surgery, one of the things that surprised me the most when I rotated with you and the whole team was the speed with which you performed the bulking surgeries. What impact does this have on the patient's recovery and the disease of, uh, prognosis of, of the patients? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. I, I think it's about the speed. It's about to be precise, to be clean, to follow the streets of the abdomen, not to lose a lot of blood. So I think it's a combination of, of everything. I mean, there are fast surgeons who are very, yeah, where you, so it's not just about the speed. I think, and I, I believe if a patient is in theater for many hours, eight, nine, ten hours, <clears throat> the, the, restraint that this patient will have cardiovascularly on everything is much higher if you have a, a more efficient and faster surgery. Yeah, I think there is no discussion about that. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, patients who have not had a very long surgery usually will recover easier. They will need to go to ITU necessarily as long, but it's not just a matter of speed. It's a matter of of following the avascular spaces, not causing a lot of blood, just being clean in the way you operate. So that is more important than the actual speed. But Kike, there is no discussion that the way, I mean, my father used to say that the fate of the patient is being written and signed in the operating room. Yeah, the way you manipulate the tissue, the way the, 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 the spaces you open, the the harm or not harm that you cause, this is that this is the thing that determine the patient's fate and the patient's post-operative um, course. And and I mean, there was a very nice study, I think it was published in New England Journal of Medicine, where they, in bariatric surgery, it was a gastric sleeve gastrectomy, where they compared different videos of different surgeons and, and they saw that the surgeons who had the cleanest, more efficient surgery, they did not just have lower surgical complication rates, but also medical complication rates, thromboembolic events, heart attacks, you know, everything was lower in those surgeons. So what you do, what we do, signs the fate of those patients. That's why we need to be very, very careful how we manipulate the tissue, how we handle the patient as a whole. Thank you very much, fully agree. That's great. Uh, yes, that's Thank great. And the last question, you are probably the youngest of the top ovarian cancer surgeons. How do you achieve that? Do you have any, any magic recipe that you could share with us? <laughs> <laughs> My dear Kiki, I'm not that young anymore. I wish, I wish, um, I wish. 
So I, so I think one of the most important things was that I decided very early what I wanted to do. So I decided very early that I wanted to do surgery. And I have been watching and assisting in theater since I was 17, yeah? So I have been, I mean, I can't even count the days and nights that I found I spent in theater. That has had massive, that, that was of course associated with a lot of sacrifices. So because when you're 17 or 18 and there is an anastomotic leak in the evening and you go and help and hold the retractor instead of going to a club, yeah, that's a, that's a sacrifice. So the only secret that I have, which is not a secret or the recipe that I have is exposure, just being dedicated, knowing what you want and just be there, be in theater and, and, and try to learn as much as you can. Yeah. Um, the amounts, the things that I've seen, I've learned was just by standing in theater as a second assistant or even third assistant in any opportunity I got. And I started very early. That's nice. Thank you. And now I think it's the, it's the turn of Irina. Yeah, thank you, Kike. Thank you. So we are all very, very honored to speak to you today. And thank you so much for joining us. And um, I prepared three questions. And my first question is, are surgeons born or made? And do you think that everybody can become a skilled surgeon just by practice? Mm. It's a, that's a very, very good question, Irina. So um, as with everything in life um, and as with all uh, features of uh, personality and all gifts that are being given to you, every person, I think, is being born with a, with a tool of, of gifts, with a toolbox, yeah? <laughs> so <laughs> that is why all people are so different, just because we are all, yeah, we all have a different toolbox in our pocket. I think that is a fact and I don't think anybody can deny that. So um, there are some people who are lucky to lucky enough to like and want to do the things that um, fit with their tool set that they're born. <laughs> and there are the unlucky ones that want to do something that doesn't be, where they need different tools than the ones that they have. Okay. So um, of course, a surgeon is not just born. Of course, a surgeon can be made. It's just that if you have also in your toolbox dexterity, yeah, um, it just helps and makes it a bit faster. But this doesn't mm -hmm. mean that this doesn't mean that if you have in your toolbox dexterity, you can just operate without, you know, practice or dedication. Completely not. And the other way around. Um, somebody who perhaps is not born with an extensive dexterity can still become a great surgeon just by practice and dedication. But if you have both, then that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for this answer. And, uh, <laughs> it's a good answer. <laughs> um, my next question is, um, do female surgeons have to choose between career and family? What are your thoughts on this issue and how is it possible to manage both? Yeah, so I, for a long time, did not have answered to that. And I was thinking, I didn't know, I thought perhaps it wasn't possible till I got my two children and my amazing husband and my amazing nanny. Uh, and I saw it is possible. 
so I think at the end, it's everything in our mind. Um, you need to have luck and you need to have good organization properties. No discussion. But I think we as women, if I'm allowed to say that, we're a bit perhaps better than men in organizing time and organizing things. So that is on our side. So it needs a lot of organization um, properties and, and, and time, but it is absolutely possible. It is absolutely, you need a, you need a supportive you need help, yeah, either a partner or a good nanny or both. <laughs> uh, this doesn't mean that you can't do it without a partner, but you need a nanny then. But you need, you need somebody to help you. And it is possible. It is possible. And also something that I, I found, sometimes people say, oh, I won't see my children, but I will go. I have to be at work and then I will miss my children and this is bad for the children. You know, nothing pays off when I'm, a long day at work and then I come home and my children are so happy to see me and they hug me. You know, they wouldn't do that if I was the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and of course, when you are with them, you have to have quality time with them. You have to switch the phone off. You have to mm. just be with them. So, you know, sometimes to be two hours with them, high quality time, it's perhaps the same like being five hours with them and trying to do everything together. So there are ways, and I don't think women need to choose, not nowadays anymore. Congratulations, cool. really, really. It's a, it's very inspirational to hear such an answer. And I also think that quality comes before quantity, so. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And nobody, none of you, of us, should be inhibited by the fact or should choose. Your children, they will make you more wise. My children have made me wiser and more mature to treat my patients. Definitely. Definitely. Okay, and my last question is, if you could go back in time, what would you change in your professional life? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I'm happy with my choice. I'm happy with how things have turned out. Um, Something that I'm, I, I don't know, not regret, but I wish is that I could have worked in my own country more, mm -hmm. in Greece. Okay. I can understand it, yeah. Good, so um, now I think Alex has three more questions. Thank you, Irina. Christina, we are so happy to talk to you today. I also have three questions. The first one, what the most unexpected obstacle you've had to face and what did you learn from it? Yeah, yeah. you mean, um, you mean in, in surgery or in career or in- In your career, in, in your professional career. Unexpected obstacle, unexpected obstacle. Um, well, I'm somebody who tries to always expect the unexpected. <laughs> so always, it's like a chess play. Yeah, you always try to understand all the parameters so that you are prepared. So I have always tried to do that. So I have been very lucky um, not to have something very unexpected that inhibited me that I either I didn't predict or I couldn't um, I couldn't overcome or 
even if there was something that inhibited me, I tried to change it in a good way so that I just go plan B and make plan B better. That is how I always try to do things. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you. And uh, my second question, what do you look for in a fellow or a trainee? Yeah, the, the answer is very simple, dedication. Yeah, dedication and, and um, love to the patients and to what they do. And um, yeah, mainly dedication, to be honest. Yeah, everything else can be, and kindness, dedication and kindness, everything else can be taught. Yeah, so I don't really care about dexterity. I don't really care about uh, how good or bad they write a paper. What I care is that, they are there as long as it's needed. Yeah, I can't talk against the European timetable, but you know, if there is a leak in the evening that they're there with me and try to learn, that they're kind to the patients, that they're not arrogant, that they're humble, that's the most important. Obviously, thank you. And finally, what advice would you give a fellow who wishes to do gynecologic oncology? Yeah, again, very simple answer to start as early, as soon as they realize that they want to do this, to go and work in a center that does this type of surgeries and does this type of treatment so that they uh, get exposure from early on. Yeah, so exposure, 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 then networking. I mean, I never had, when I started this opportunity of being able to collaborate and network with all these amazing young gynecologists from all over the world. You have this opportunity now. So that is why in every young uh, fellow who comes to me and wants to do gyne, the first thing that I tell them is go uh, register in ESCO, in ENIGO, mentorship, networking, and exposure. These three things. These are the three, th I think, the three recipes of success. Okay, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. Perfect, thank you. And with this fellowship, we've certainly networked with each other and we just had a, an incredible time sort of collaborating together. Um, so I want to thank you for participating in the podcast. Um, it's been an inspirational session that we've had today. Um, and I certainly, all those years ago, really enjoyed working with you. You're certainly someone that has always stood out um, as being a surgeon of excellence. Um, so we wanted to... Thank you for participating and also thank you for everything you've done to improve the care for women with gynecological cancer. Um, we've all learned so much from you already um, and we look forward to seeing even more from you throughout the next um, 10, 10, 20 years. I'm very honoured. So I'm inspired by you and by your strength and by your courage and just keep going. Thank you very much. <laughs>